How many of you know that learning to live a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting life is the primary focus of the book of Colossians? Okay. Let's close in prayer. You know, Paul wrote this letter originally to confront the false teaching that had crept into the church at Colossae. The false teachers claimed that Christ certainly was helpful, but not as helpful as necessary for being right with God. So they insisted the people needed to participate, that is, the church they were sneaking into and sharing these lies uh, to, they insisted the people needed to participate in self-punishing acts of discipline, attend rituals and partake in rituals and rites and taboos in order to receive the secret revelations, in order to keep safe from evil spirits and to be delivered from the affliction they were receiving, most likely because they were Christians. Of course, we know that the goal of false teaching is always to diminish Christ and to distract believers even from Christ-centered living, to be totally focused on Christ and Christ alone. To correct this, Paul uh, focuses or refocuses their attention on the supremacy of Christ and the salvation through Christ alone in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Colossians. Then, in chapter 3, the apostle begins developing practical implications for how to live their lives, our lives today, united by Christ or in Christ through faith. He does this by describing our new standing in Christ in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3, which I was able to preach on last summer. And then he calls each of us to live out the servanthood. He calls us and then tells us, commands us to live out the servanthood required for such a tremendously blessed status that we have in Christ. And that goes from chapter 3, verse 5, all the way through 4, 6. There's much there. In this way, what we're learning is, by laying out the facts of God, who God is, and the servanthood required, those are called the declarations of Scripture. They let us know who God is and who we are and what, and the, and the uh, imperatives tell us the commands of what we need to do because that's true. And so we know by virtue of God's grace, He has declared wonderful bounties of blessing upon us. And we know by His commands that we now are to live in agreement with God and what He commands or tells us to do. He's protecting us. He's guiding us. He's, he's making us more into the image of Christ. And we are sharing that as we grow in our image of Christ in that sense uh, with the world around us to see people redeemed and to encourage and bless those around us. One of the precious truths in Scripture is that we are saved by God's grace alone. Isn't that the perfect gospel? We are saved by God's grace alone and by nothing else. Nothing at all we could do could possibly save us. But there is an issue, and the issue is us. We can often think that it's okay to hang on to some of our old life, some of our old sin. Some of the things that we've been practicing for years as a Christian. That means we truly do not understand God's grace. 
And that is something we all can do and all do. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that God would give us the adjustments we need to direct and guide us. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, for the understanding that we need. The title of our sermon this morning is, Put to Death Your Old Christ-Like Life. Put to Death Your Old Christ-Like Life. We're going to take a look at three key areas of how to do that, or why to do that. Number one, put off your sinful practice. We need to put off the things that we're practicing. Well, I'm not practicing sin. If you've done it more than once, you've begun your practice. We want to put those things off. Number two, what are those sinful things? We answer the question, the sinful things we practice that we must put off. The sinful practices, excuse me, you must put off. We're going to take a look at those from our Scripture this morning. And thirdly, we'll see why we should put off, why you should put off your sinful practices. So put to death your old Christless life. Put off your sinful practices. The sinful practices you must put off, we'll look at. And then why you should put off your sinful practices. Here's the main idea, the big idea, what we want to drive the sermon through in Scripture that we see, and to help us remember what this is all about. The main idea, every Christian, every Christian is called by God to grow in maturity in Christ by putting off sinful practices and cultivating Christ-likeness. Let me read that one more time. Every Christian is called by God to grow in maturity in Christ by putting off sinful practices and cultivating Christ-likeness. I would like to take a moment to read for you Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, keeping in mind that it's laid out with wonderful uh, declarations before and after as motivating factors, the encouraging things that cause us to fall more in love with God, to want to be obedient to the things that we see in our passage today. We are told in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of the wrath of God, on account of the, these, excuse me, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What a challenging and yet beautiful text of God's protection over us and His desire to keep us safe and bless us. Excuse me. So our sermon, put to death your old Christless life. Our first point tells us right off the bat, put off your sinful practices. Even though the death of our old self, even though we've experienced this death of our old self, and we now have this new life in Christ, 
and it takes place in an absolute instant when the Lord redeems us. Living out this reality of rejecting sin is a daily work of faith on our part. It's hard work. It's hard work to die to self and to live for Christ, isn't it? Each one of us understand that, and we know that. Paul uses two metaphors here, put to death and put off, to describe the never-ending work of rejecting our sin. And since every Christian has died with Christ, according to Scripture, and their life is now in Christ, you and I are commanded to deal a death blow, a death blow, put to death any remaining sin in our life. Take a look at verse 5, please. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, that is, what is sinful in you. God's command here to put to death our sin tells us severe measures must be taken in order to conquer sin. How severe? We must put them to death. That's severe. The Puritan John Owen expressed it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, we see here extreme problems require extreme solutions. And Paul makes it clear as he amps up the pressure, as he intensifies the urgency. Drop your eyes down to verse 8, and we'll look at verse 8 and 9, or at least a portion of them. He states this, but now, but now meaning the urgent, right now, but now you must put them all away. Put them all away. Preparing for this sermon, there is a lot that goes through your heart and mind personally as the Lord is taking you through these things. And then he goes on to tell us, we see more coming, seeing that you have put off, in verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Again, the but now at the beginning of verse 8 tells us a major shift has taken place in our past, if you're a Christian. A major shift has taken place in our past. If we're a Christian, what's that shift? Something's completely changed. Do you know what it is? It's you. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are alive in Christ. And as a new creation in Christ, what else becomes new? The Word tells us all things become new in that sense. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Paul established that we died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. We have died with Christ and we have, raised, have been raised with Christ. That's what we see in baptism, right? We see that pictured in baptism. So now you and I must live out that truth in this new life in Christ. We must remember when we're tempted that we have died to these things. You see, the moment we are converted in Christ, we become united by the Spirit of God to Christ in such a way that we really did die with Him in that sense. And in that sense, our former sinful impulses, our former, former sinful values and motivations and convictions and even affections and passions which governed our lives and give us identity, we're given a death blow. Given a death blow. In that instant, we were redeemed. 
and the old John Filkey is gone, and the new John Filkey stands before you in process, just like you. We're all in process with the Lord in this. And here's the thing. If you haven't died in this way with Christ, you're not a Christian. That's what Scripture tells us. It's really that simple. Listen to Paul's words to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 14. He states this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What, Paul? What what did you say? He said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That means what the world meant to Paul, what the world meant to Paul, wow, (laughs) sorry, what the world meant to Paul before Christ, it was now dead to him the moment God redeemed him. To put it another way, the Paul that used to love the world more than Jesus died the day he became a Christian. Does that make sense? Paul became a new creation in Christ that day, a new Christ-believing, Christ-trusting, Christ-loving, Christ-treasuring, Christ-honoring Paul, a completely new man. He was murdering and being a part of putting Christians in prison and murdering them, and now he has completely been changed by God. Friend, this is what it means to become a Christian. We're different. The old things are passed away, and we have the new before us. When we become a Christian, we put off our old sinful practices, and now by our behavior, the fact that a death has occurred or taken place in our life, a new life has begun. There's been a complete change, an absolute change. Remember the main idea. Every Christian is called by God to grow in maturity in Christ by putting off sinful practices and cultivating Christ-likeness. Living out this new life of reality, this new reality that we're in, requires a daily work of faith, doesn't it? Because I don't feel like I'm changing very fast. You probably think the same thing. We tend to not see those things. We need to put to death our old Christless life. And this need for faith becomes clear as we are confronted with the second point in our sermon, which states this. It shows us the sinful practices you must put off, that I must put off. Here, Paul represents... uh, Several examples of sin in two categories. Two categories. Sexual sins and relational sins. Sexual sins and relational sins. He says this. Tells us in verse 5. Looking at sexual sins first, he states, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, that is, what is sinful in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, I want to just go through and give you some definitions so we understand we're on the same page. 
Sexual immorality refers to sexual activity outside of marriage, period. Whether premarital sex, affairs, homosexual relationships, pornography, and on and on it goes. It seems like they're trying to invent new, new sexual sins in our culture today, but as you read through Scripture, you know there's nothing new under the sun, right? Sexual, immor- sexual immorality refers to sexual activity outside of marriage, as I stated, uh, whether it's affairs, homosexuality, uh, pornography, and so on. Impurity speaks of the evil thoughts and intentions of one's mind. Impurity speaks of the evil thoughts and intentions of one's mind. Boy, are we being challenged this morning. So am I. For God has not called us for impurity, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, but in holiness. Thirdly, we see passion. Passion is any lust or desire for sexual activity outside of marriage. Next, we see evil desires. Evil desires are the sinful sexual desires which lead to sinful actions. They start in your heart and mind, and they eventually lead to sinful actions. And then there is the sin of covetousness. Do you see that there connected to idolatry? That's an important connection for us to understand. What we see here is covetousness is identified with idolatry. And so how are the two connected? The two are connected because covetousness is the desire for that which is not lawfully yours. God hasn't given it to you, but you, you covet it. You want what someone else has right? And we tend to live in a way that we like when people want what we have. It makes us feel special. We can actually stumble people in that way. But here we see that covetousness is the desire for that which is not lawfully yours. And it takes place every time you and I, ready? It take, covetous takes, covetousness takes place every time you and I are not content with God or with what God has given us. We're regularly bombed on our phones, in advertisement, and emails, the speed in which we can get things from all kinds of uh, delivery services and items and so on. We are bombarded with this. And, and what we're told, the connection here of covetousness and idolatry then is this. Whenever we seek what we desire instead of God and what He desires, that thing we're seeking becomes what? Becomes an idol. Becomes an idol of our heart. Becomes an idol that we own and we possess. And we think of it and we polish it and we make it all great. And, and, and if it was to fall off the mantle of our lives, we would, our, our world would be shattered to not have that. Friends, sexual sin is an idol because it serves and worships self rather than the Creator. You see that? These are challenges for us to keep in our minds uh, on, you know, with what we look at, what we take in, where we go, who we're involved with. So friend, let's, let me ask you some serious questions for a moment. Maybe ask yourself this question. How am I living that reflects I've died to that old self and I'm living for Jesus. How am I living now? Another question. Do I have sexual sin in my life? 
Next question. What do I think about all day long? Is there someone or something I have placed above God? Maybe it is my spouse. Maybe it's my kids. Maybe it's my reputation, my stuff, my junk. What am I seeking first? Is it the kingdom of God that all things will then be added unto me? These are hard questions, and they're meant to be hard because God wants to protect us. It's not an easy place to stand up and talk about these things, and it's motivated by a love and concern and desire for all of us to care for one another, to protect one another. We're a flock, a local church, a local assembly, and when one sins, we should all struggle and feel it, and oftentimes we do. And we run to that person to care for them, not in a self-righteous manner, but for God there go I, right? But we run to love, we run to care, we love to support and encourage one another, and that takes each of us. You need me, I need you. We all need one another. That's the way Christ has designed it, and he gets all the glory. So I ask you, are you physically or emotionally cheating on your spouse in some way? That sin, it's an idol, and it must be put off immediately. Friends, the answer isn't managing our sin better. You know, I'm doing better. I'm not doing those things as often as I used to. No, that's not what God says. That's not the answer. That's still idol worship. And you need to make a clean break. I need to make clean, a clean break. We all need to make a clean break from anything that can destroy us. It must be put to death. Again, be killing sin because it is certainly trying to kill you. That's our first catalog of sins Paul gave us. Now there's a second. And these sins also must be put to death, and they're the relational sins that we have. And there are several areas where we need to look into our hearts. We need to love one another to talk to one another. It's hard to do that when we get sucked into something too, because we feel like a hypocrite if we say something to them, though the Spirit's moving in our heart to say something. Well, then they'll throw it in my face. Okay, bring it. It needs to be done, right? So let's look at these relational sins in verses 8 and 9. Just raise your hand if this is you. I'm kidding. (laughs) We all know if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. So here we stand by God's grace, right? Anger. I'm angry that you brought that up. Anger. Wrath. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Wow, we do see the need for our Savior, don't we? Desperately need Him. Let's talk about these words in quick definitions, okay, to help us. It's important for us to know what the problem is, have it diagnosed so that we can take the appropriate action together. 
anger. Anger and wrath are similar, but anger refers, ready, to a deeply settled attitude of anger. It's, it's what you're known as. You're that person. You're that guy. You're that woman. You're that kid. Just always angry. You never know. Everybody around you is walking on eggshells. Wrath, on the other hand, speaking of eggshells, refers more to sudden outbursts. So there's anger, a deeply settled attitude of anger, and then there's outbursts. There's that wrath that, whoa, duck, you never know when it's going to come or when it's going to come out of you. Malice, let's look at that. Malice is the intention to hurt another person in some way, any way at all, any way at all. It's, a vicious, it's vicious in nature with an attitude of ill will, an attitude of ill will that either wishes or does harm to another. Oh, I would never do it. Oh, but inside. There's a lot of things that could motivate us to do this. Malice is glad when the other person is hurting and sorry when they're doing well. That's malice. It is the opposite of Romans 12, which tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's slander. Slander is any speech no matter how minor you convince yourself it is, or I convince myself is, it is, slander is any speech which, with, which brings injury to another's reputation. You know, i got to tell you, my wife, boy, I tell you, she's a doll. No. Uh, you know, we can go on, and we think we're helping ourselves to gain, get people on our side, or it could be anything. It can be anything at all where we're slandering. Did you hear what John said this morning? Really? It could be anything. And then there's obscene talk. Now, this can refer either to filthy language, foul language, or it can refer to abusive language. That's obscene as well, isn't it? The two are often combined, though, and that's when it gets scarier, more scary. Especially when you are angry and slandering and full of malice. Can you imagine the level of obscene talk? We don't have to imagine it. We've been there. We've heard it. We've perpetrated it upon others. That's why God gives us His Word to gently and lovingly correct us and bring us back over saying, son, daughter, this is not serving you well. It's not serving those around you well. And it's certainly not serving me well. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Paul writes this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, if you don't have something good to say, Keep your pie hole shutter full of pie. <laughs> right? That's the idea here. So will this list remain? Let me ask. So we look at sexual sin, and some are like, oh, that's not me. Uh, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't, I'm not stumbled in that whatsoever. Oh, okay. 
But let me ask you this, or let me, let, let me say this. Will this list remain the one we just read, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Because it's not as bad in your mind. It's, it's an acceptable sin, you see. These are acceptable. This is the way we grew up. We, this, is, this is the way it is, right? Will this list remain in your deceptively, deceptively sinful category of acceptable sins? Or will you finally, brother, sister, John Filkey, put them to death? Now, in verse 9, Paul kind of breaks out with a, a bit of a loner here. And he brings up, it's neither necessarily, it's not a sexual sin, and it's, it can be involved in sexual sin, right? And it's not necessarily a relational sin, though it affects relationships. He tells us in verse 9 what? He commands this. God Himself, the Maker and Creator of everything, those, the One who has redeemed us and set us apart for His glory to live and serve Him and care for others, tells you and I, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one Well, it's a white lie. It's, everybody does that. Let me read that again. Do not lie to one another. Simply put, Christians... You and I, because we're Christians, are to always, underline always, tell the truth. Don't be afraid of telling the truth. If you're being called out on something, the Lord is purifying you and going to work through you in it. Your sin fi- our sin finds us out, right? That's what Scripture tells us. Lying, on the other hand, though we are to tell the truth as Christians, Lying is the primary character trait of Satan, right? He's the the father of what? Lies. He's the father of it. And so when we sin, we're, we're obediently following him. But God never lies, according to Titus 1, 2. So in actuality, when, when we tell a lie, we're imitating God or Satan? We're imitating Satan. We're not imitating our Heavenly Father, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Lying is sin, and it too needs to be what? Put to death today, immediately in your heart, before you leave. So, brothers and sisters, as those who are complete in Christ, holy and righteous as Christ, meaning if you died today, you would be standing before God in heaven in His holy, holy requirement to be in heaven, and that is bestowed upon us by Jesus Christ. But we are in the process of sanctification, and in that process of being already there but not yet there, we are working out our salvation with what? With fear and trembling. And we're, we're moving forward in this way. And the reason um, that it's helpful this way is because we're utterly dependent on God. We remain in the struggle and in the battle that we would remain completely trusting 
and following our Lord and being there for one another to encourage one another to do the same. So, brothers and sisters, as those who are complete in Christ and partakers of His risen life, do you see how crucial it is for you and I to put our sin to death? Friend, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, we couldn't be happier that you're here. We were once unbelievers too. And as you can hear by what we're talking about this morning from God's Word, it is a struggle every day for all of us. But there is a difference. There is a difference because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're alive in Christ. As an unbeliever, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and you're dead set against Christ, spiritually speaking. This all points to the impossibility of us being good enough to save ourselves. So in that sense, you're in great company. We all need to repent of our sin and put our trust in Christ and Christ alone and remain dependent on God and the Holy Spirit and with the assistance of one another to live out the Christ-like life that is nay impossible. It is impossible as an unbeliever, but it is possible in Christ, for He calls us to such a high calling. And we would pray that even today, before you leave, you would speak to someone next to you or come speak to myself or one of the elders and talk and share and let us walk with you through these decisions, the most important decision you'll ever make in humbling yourself, repenting of your sin, and placing your trust in Christ who died for our sin and rose the third day to prove that He is indeed God seated at the right hand of the Father. So friend, as we prepared for our next point, let me ask you this one last question under point number two. When is the best time to start obeying Jesus Christ? We know that answer. Remember, every Christian, our main point, every Christian is called by God to grow in maturity in Christ by putting off sinful practices and cultivating Christ-likeness. If we're not putting off sinful practices, we're likely not maturing at all. We're going the other way and may not even realize it. So as you can see, this battle for holiness that must be fought every day of our lives as Christians is ongoing. There is no day off, and it can be and is exhausting, isn't it? That's why we run to all the trinkets. That's why we run to all these things. We're looking for some kind of emotional or some sort of stress release. But there is hope in the battle, isn't there? For we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. One day we will be with our Lord. And there is no more sin, no more crying, no more sorrow. But until then, fight the fight. We have an eternity to rejoice in what God has done. Oh, how we look forward, right, to that glorious day 
when we will no longer be tempted to sin, no longer stumbled by our, into temptation and then into sin, we will have a new outer man acting in holiness that is the perfect match for the inner man who already loves holiness inside of us. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and why don't I do the things I want to do, Paul said. Oh, what a wretched man I am. What, what do I need? Ah, but for Christ, our only hope. But until that day, friends, we're in a battle together to put to death yours and my old Christless life. And it rages on. And this morning's, yeah, excuse me, and this morning, in this, sorry, and this morning in God's word, he directs us in no uncertain terms to put off our sinful practices. And then he graciously provides us these lists of sinful practices that we must put off. And now, our final point this morning, Paul explains why you should, why you and I should put off your old sinful practices. Why should we do that? Take a look back in verse 6. There's four reasons here we're going to go through quickly. The first reason in verse 6 tells us, why put it off? Why put off sinful practices? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Oh, that's right. That is a sobering statement. And it can even put fear into our hearts, the right kind of fear, if we're practicing sin and rebelling against God as a Christian. And it should, because we're not there yet. When the Bible speaks of God's wrath, it's talking about God's righteous anger against sin. His wrath is His righteous anger against sin. You see, God is holy, perfectly holy. We can't even imagine that. But God is holy and will not tolerate sin. And verse 6 here confirms the impending judgment He has against sin. As God's redeemed children, we need to fear His wrath. We know His love, and we need to fear His wrath as the guardrails of living the Christ-like life. But as Christians, we should not partake in the very things that will provoke His wrath against those who are not redeemed. Let me read to you from Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. Again, we should not participate in the very things that will provoke His wrath against those who are not redeemed. He state, Paul states this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. The wrath of God is coming for son, the sons of disobedience, that is, the unredeemed. And so don't partake in what the unredeemed do is the call to action for us. So why should we put off the sin in our lives? The wrath of God is coming. And since that is true, why in the world do we partake of it? We do, but we need to put it to death. And we've been empowered to do that with this new life of who we are in Christ. 
And if we give into temptation and we're not moving forward and growing in maturity, we're more susceptible to all kinds of sin. So the second reason for why you should put off your sinful practice is that they belong to your old Christless way of life, right? Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Loved ones, we already lived this way before, the way we were before God redeemed us by His grace. When we came to Christ, remember, we came to Him asking for His forgiveness for these very things. We're sick of ourselves. We need Your forgiveness, Lord. We need deliverance from these things. In that sense, Paul is saying, remember when you sought your satisfaction in sin? And do you remember how empty it is? Romans 6, 21-23 tells us, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We put off sin then because these things belong to the old way of life. That's the second reason. Now the third reason for why we should put off our sinful practice is, practices is because God is currently making you and me as believers into someone new. Verses 9 and 10 tell us, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here again, Paul uses this illustration of clothing, pointing out that Christians have decisively, purposely taken off that old stinky self, seeking forgiveness, seeking to be redeemed by God, and asking Him to deliver us, right? And this is a past tense thing that takes place here. The old self with its, its practices, it's, it's the old self. It's telling it's, it's the past. It's a thing of the past. God wants to replace it with something new. Why do we want to put on that nasty old self? And so, to have it replaced in something new is the assurance that verse 10 gives you and I. And we've put on the new self, which is what? Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we need to be renewed. We've been redeemed, but this process of sanctification is we need to be renewed how often? Day by day. How? By grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And so notice the importance of knowledge. It's not just knowledge without application. There's a lot of people walking around with that. It's, it's knowledge with application. Knowledge is important. It gives us categories for living as Christ calls us. There will be no spiritual growth in your life without knowledge of God's Word. 
because you only have a sinful past to base your going forward on, right? So you see, when we grow in our knowledge of God through His Word, we are being renewed in the image of God our Creator. I want to help you with that. And you want to help one another with that, don't you? And help me with that? We want to be more and more like our Savior. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We read that this morning. Thus far, Scripture has given us three reasons why uh, in this passage here, three re- this, this third point here, we've seen three reasons why you should put off your sinful practices. Now let's look at the final fourth one here in our text. The fourth one is that in Christ, all man-made barriers have been removed. All man-made barriers. Doesn't matter what club you're in, what side of the aisle you're in, if you're a Christian and they're a Christian, all those barriers have been removed. Paul names four of them. Listen, I'll read the verse from 11, but they deal with racial, religious, cultural, and social barrier, barriers. Now, who says the eternal Word of God isn't good for today? That sounds like you just turned on the news. Racial, religious, cultural, social barriers? Paul tells us in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, racial, circumcised and uncircumcised, religious, barbarian, Scythian, those who were not Greek were considered barbarians. That's cultural. Slave or free, those are social barriers. But Christ is all and in all. Do you see that? God not only wants holiness in your new life, but also harmony. Harmony. Can you see that? In this, in this section of Scripture we've been looking at, He wants holiness and harmony. We need to be putting to death the sexual sins in our lives. That's all about holiness. We need to put to death the interpersonal sins in our lives. That's all about harmony, unity. The new self in Christ is not just our transformation as an individual but a transformation as a local church, a local assembly of believers, a local community, you and I. So it's not just doing away with sinful patterns or habits. It's also doing away with the man-made barriers that divide us. These man-made barriers are merely human distinctions. They're not sin. And they are not how God views you and I in Christ as this local body. In Christ, all racial barriers have been removed. In Christ, there are no divisions in the church over religious traditions or preferences. In Christ, there are no cultural barriers between Christians. And in Christ, all social barriers have been removed. Rejoice. Paul confirms in Christ these barriers have been removed. He makes it clear. They have no bearing. They have no relevance on your new life in Christ. When he states, 
but Christ is all and in all. That means Christ is all that matters. That means that Christ is in every believer. He is all in all. Therefore, that means Christ takes precedence over man-made barriers and divisions. Sure, you and I can disagree on all kinds of things. We can disagree strongly, provided we're not using uh, the words and so on. We can disagree strongly. But what we must not do, what what we must never do, is fail to love one another. We got to work it out. We can work it out. If God lives in you and God lives in me, we'll humble ourselves and we'll be better for it, won't we? Why should we do all these things? Because you cannot receive new life in Christ and continue the way you used to as if nothing changed. That old man is dead and you got to keep throwing dirt on him because he wants to come back and party. He wants to come back and kick it up a notch, doesn't he? Throw more dirt on him. Bury him deeper. Bury him deeper by looking to Christ, remembering who you are in Christ and all that he's done to redeem you from that life. It took Christ being crushed on a cross to save us from that life. May we use our new life for his glory in the days ahead. Friends, you've put on this new life in Christ, and that means making a conscious decision all day, every day, to put to death your old Christless life to the glory of God and for the good of all of us around you and vice versa. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful by the abundance of your mercy, the abundance of your kindness, your level of love for us that would tell us the hard things, the things we must surrender, the things we must do by your grace, by your power, by the the beautiful implications, the declarations of Scripture that empower us in the strength of who we really are in Christ. Yes, we are twisted and broken and depraved, but Christ redeemed us to live differently. And so we trust in your power to do so. Lord, may we build relationships that will protect one another. May we be humble enough to admit our failures and our flaws. We know that when humility is taking place, your grace is flowing more and more. You certainly resist the proud, and so we ask now that you would humble us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.